0: Open to Hebrews chapter 7, as Pat said, verse 26. I want to read, beginning with verse 23, uh, that we may remember the context in which the passage of text is given, uh, that it would bring to mind those things that we've studied in previous weeks uh, so that we have a greater understanding should the Holy Spirit see fit to reveal to us this morning the the truths of Christ in this text. And it begins there in verse 23, describing the greatness of Christ as he is fulfilling this priesthood after or according to the order of Melchizedek, as we have seen in chapter 7. That's important because not only has this priesthood been presented as one that is uh, preeminent, though uh considering all of the former priests that of the uh, levitical priesthood but it is also that which in, in order of things seems to come after but endures forever and building upon that this final great and greatest if you will priesthood that belongs uh only truly to christ and that will be everlasting in Christ. We'll now see, although it's presented in its in its glory and and its, its uh and its beauty and its fullness, considering uh, all of the priests that we have seen in the priesthood that uh, seemingly has preceded it with the line of Aaron. We'll now see even to a greater degree how great this priesthood is, but more importantly, how great this priest is. Uh, Verse 23, the former priest on the one hand existed in great numbers because they were prevented uh, by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices. First for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you this morning as, as creator, as God, as Lord of all creation. God, understanding that we have been created and we have been placed where we are, Lord, that we have been appointed even unto salvation and to our uh, perspective places within your church, Lord, that we may serve and that we may glorify and that we may exalt, that we may be sanctified by this man and his work, this Jesus, the Christ of whom we read, Lord, and as we consider those things, Lord, let us this morning uh, consider our attitudes, Lord our desires our loves and affections god that we may see that we must draw away from those things that are fleshly or that we must leave the desires of the old man god that we must leave behind uh, the lustful loves of the past god that we may see christ and his excellency and his greatness and his supremacy and this priesthood in which he serves as a mediator and intercessor or that we may believe in him and have life in his name and beyond that God that we may be changed by him that we may be conformed to his image Lord as much as we understand that reading the word believing in Christ exercising faith changes us and that we come here lord even to be changed we must as well acknowledge that this day is about exaltation and glorification or that it is about ascribing to the god of all creation the glory and honor due your name lord and we ask that you would enable us lord deliver us from sin and temptation that we may this morning have our eyes fixed on nothing but the cross so as you would receive what is due your name, O God, that we would behave the way that you have purposed Christians to behave or that we would delight in the things that we are called to in purification and holiness. Lord, this day we ask that you would make us more like our Savior, Lord, and we ask that you would see fit that he be elevated above everything in creation above everything in heaven and on earth lord and that our minds will know it our tongues will confess it and our hearts will declare it Lord, we thank you so much for your blessings both temporal and spiritual this morning as we consider what you have done for us in the past week Lord, in what you have done and preparing for us this day. And we ask that you would bless it, Lord, and that you would sanctify it for your holy use. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So many things uh, to consider this morning, none of which should be new to us in considering verse 26. It says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This, at first glance, seems to be uh, an indication and a summary of the Christ that many of us know to be the Christ of the Bible, the Messiah who saves. But we have to as well remember the purpose of the Hebrews as the uh, penman not only attempts but is moved to and most certainly will appeal to those who have been religious in a sense. We, we know that the people of the Bible and even people today, Americans and those all around the world, may find themselves and think themselves to be religious, may think themselves to believe even maybe in a Jesus or maybe in a Christ but not the Jesus and not the true Christ. And so the, the evidence is set before us that there is still a battle to be won. This battle is about the person of Christ and about the power of Christ and about the message of the gospel. In our attempt to serve the Lord, we may find any number of reasons uh, to follow to some degree what we have set up as our own laws in life, our own regulations, our own legalities, if you will, a certain standard for this or for that. And what the Bible is declaring as we move throughout Hebrews is that anything that we find to be holy or anything that we find to be pious or righteous does not lie within the act of doing or the act of keeping as far as man can do it, but it relies upon simply this great high priest christ in effect as the text is describing to us a christ it is describing to us what holiness really is what righteousness really is what it means to be truly saved does not hinge upon your ability to give to the church or to give to god of temporal possessions it does not Uh, lie within how many times a day that you pray or how much that you read the word or how many times that you have uh thinking that you have spared your tongue from sinning against god or even what you wear or what you drink or what you eat but it depends solely upon what you understand of this christ When we look at the previous passages, we see that Christ is being described as one who is appointed to the priesthood like every man. But then we see that his priesthood is supreme, that it is far superior to that before it. Even in regards to this man, Melchizedek, Christ must be better. He must be greater. If we see that, then we'll begin to understand as we dissect verse 26 what it means to have such a priest. Because it says, For it was fitting for us to have. Such as this, to have a Christ, who is all of the things formerly described here in chapter 7. That we have this priest who is pictured in Melchizedek, the king of peace, uh, a priest of the Most High, king of Salem as he is called. We know that he is uh, given unto this, again, priest Melchizedek by Abraham, one who is considered throughout the text of Scripture, even specifically to these Hebrew people, as especially high, especially righteous, as close to God as you can get in one sense, these people thought. But yet, this Melchizedek, as he was illustrating the Christ to come in this uh, position as priest, in this particular order not after levitical priesthood or uh, or aaron's lineage but after this appointment unto god that is forever we see that christ again is higher is greater abraham was picturing this for us as he gave then as the passage progresses we see that there was a need for this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. It was a necessity. Why? That must mean that there was something failing. There was something temporal about that that came before it. Verse 27 does a great deal. In verse 28 in uh, revealing to us what that was. There was this priest before Melchizedek, this priest before his order, Many priests, that is, that were, as the passage presents, uh, existing in great number because they were limited by the physical life of their mortal bodies. And they must come again and again in sacrifice. And here we have depicted uh, in verse 24, Jesus that does not uh, live as man lives in that respect who does not die as man would die in that respect, though Christ be uh, given to the cross and that he, of course, die and be buried. But he was resurrected and he was ascended, never to die again. You may say there were some resurrected, but I assure you that they again died. Here's a Christ who is different, who is holding uh, a position who is fulfilling a responsibility in this appointment that God has given him, and the text is clear that it is into eternity. That should mold our view of this priest. If he may continue forever, then it stands when it says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, that it is not based upon simply his morality, because some looked to him and called him teacher. Some called him rabbi, not understanding that this was the God of the Bible. They would look to him and say, This is a good man. This is a holy man. But they did not see him for the pureness and the fullness of his holiness. They did not see him for his perpetuity. That he would continue to be a priest forever. That is what is important. Because now that molds the person of Christ for us. Saying that this is not a temporal Christ. This is not a, a, a temporal Savior. This is a forever Savior. This is important. You know why? Because if he is only able to save for but a moment. Some will be in trouble. Because if he was temporary. He could only sacrifice He can only serve as a priest for a lifetime, for a short lifetime. And what do we do for those born after? What are we to do with those who would sin after the Christ would die? The issue there is that there is no sacrifice. The issue is that there is not a sufficient sacrifice. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, one that endures forever. One that is holier than any man before him. One that is better. One that is greater. One that is more godly. One who is, more importantly, sinless. Text says that in the oldest manuscripts that this would say also, not just fitting for us, but also that he is not just the things uh, preceding verse 26, but for this reason that he is all of what scripture declares them to be that he is even more so what is to continue in verse 26. He is to sinners a high priest that is first holy. First holy. I don't believe that if any of us were to consider the high priest of the former, those of Aaron's lineage, I don't think that if we spend any time with them We would think of these men as really, really holy men. In fact, you may even, unfortunately, ask people of this congregation who spend a great deal of time with me. I I sin. I'm holy. Unholy. Excuse me. The real answer is that I am bone. The men before Christ to serve in the priesthood would be considered because of Christ holy if they truly believed. If they were truly priests. And we see that there are sinful priests and high priests that were indeed not saved. But uh, the point is we spend any time with a man we see his sinfulness. We see his frailties. We see his weaknesses. We see that He is lacking something that he cannot obtain on his own. And considering the priesthood, we know that a sinful man could before Melchizedek, before Christ, a sinful man could serve. How is that? Well, he had to have some sort of holiness that was not really his own. Holiness is important. That's why it is named in verse 26. In fact, I don't believe it's by... Uh, any coincidence that it is the first thing listed here when the text says it was fitting for us to have such a high priest and it declares the first word holy as a description it is declaring to us the separation that is to be described from thence it is to call Christ holy because he is like man and he is man but it ends there because he is sinless and he is eternal sinless and eternal. It is describing holy as an attribute, as a characteristic of this priest because it was not common in the context in which holy is used. When we look at holiness, we consider what we know about it from Scripture and I want to read a few verses to you in Deuteronomy chapter seven verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Here are people who are called holy, but not truly holy in the sense that it is used for Christ here. Where do they get their holiness? In fact, it's saying that they are a holy people for the Lord or to the Lord your God. In contrast to what they would be if they were not for the Lord or to the Lord. In fact, it's telling us that if you were not God's people, you would not be holy. And it goes on and says, the Lord, your God has chosen you. Then Leviticus chapter 20. Thus, you are holy to me. But what without him? Why are you holy to him? Because it says, for I, the Lord, am holy. There is a key indicator for what we see in verse 26 about this high priest who is holy. He must be, if declared holy, he must be the Lord. He must be God. He must not be simply man, but he must be this deity as well. It's human. Of course, that is the purpose of Hebrews to declare to us and present to us the deity of Christ. It goes on to say, I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Now, this is true in, uh, in the Levitical consideration of the text, but it is also true unto the church. That there are people who would not normally be holy. They are made holy because God is holy. They are made holy because God is holy and God is making them like him through sanctification. And he has declared and he has set apart all of these things listed in verse 26. We consider further. Acts chapter 3 verse 21. Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Again, men of God called holy. There, there must be, there must be evidence, and there must be a reality of holiness for a Christian. Now, if that is the case, it must be derived from somewhere. Where is it derived? passage tells us in verse 26 that this high priest is holy the holiness cannot be traced back any further than god why because this jesus is god and he is eternal he has always existed therefore holiness cannot exist before him it cannot exist without him and it cannot exist beyond Him. Holiness. When we consider holiness, it is something that we are encouraged to be. Encouraged to wear, to put on. Encouraged to be conformed. Ephesians chapter 4 says, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That He would make us The purpose of verse 26 describing Christ as holy, as his priesthood is holy, is because it is telling us that it must come, our holiness, from him. That it must originate with Christ and cannot be found anywhere else. And just as a side note, if you may notice almost every one of the passages uh, in the Old Testament and here in the New as I begin to quote them, you'll see that holiness is ascribed to humans coming from Christ. But it also is almost always present with the salvation of Christians that is by election that is by predestination, that is by appointing. And we begin to see that holiness is not something that we may obtain, that we may buy, that we may purchase, that we may work towards. But it is hand in hand considered with salvation by grace, by faith, in Christ alone, by no other way. 1 Peter chapter 1, but like the Holy One who called you. And we're reminded every time when, when, when we see holy, we're reminded every time that it comes from Christ. And here verse 26 is doing that. The one who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Quoting those scriptures which we have formerly read. It seems like, well, you're just repeating yourself. That's right. The text is repeating itself. The text of Scripture is calling us to be holy. And it says, be holy yourselves. Why is that? Because we have a tendency not to. We have an inability to be holy. In fact, when the Scriptures are telling us to be holy, it's really telling us to look to Christ and look nowhere else. Your holiness cannot be found in keeping the law. It cannot be... Uh, contained by a set of parameters. Though those may be beneficial by a list of sins that we may abstain from, holiness is not bound in those things. In fact, holiness is bound in the heart. Not only bound in the heart, but found in the heart. Seems like a sort of Silly statement at first glance, but what we understand is it really is finding its basis on if Christ is found in the heart, and if Christ is bound in the heart, and if he is not there, then there is no holiness. Quite simply put, verse 26 is saying, Without holiness, there is no Christ, there is no high priest, and without this Christ who is high priest, there is no holiness. There is none good. We know that oftentimes in His earthly ministry, Christ would draw attention to these characteristics and these attributes that men would, I would say, haphazardly ascribe to Christ, not knowing that they were really His. Why do you call me good? In essence, why would you call me holy? For you have not known that I'm holy that was the message to those who had come without a full understanding of this Christ in fact what Christ was leading them to see is that if you may know the Father you must know the Son we must be holy there is no escape from this mortal body there is no escape in eternity that would lead us to the arms of the savior apart from holiness there is no christian without holiness and we should always be looking to see if there be an indicator of it the problem is that when men look for holiness we look for holiness with temporal eyes We look for holiness in things that are of this world. We look for holiness on the outside rather than on the inside. I believe there was a picture of that this morning, even as Nathan read from Acts talking about Jesse and his family. And we coincidentally looked over that this past Wednesday night, I think it was, considering how Samuel was to go and uh, anoint the head of this new king. And he went, he was looking on the outside, and he is rebuked by God, telling him that God does not look as man looks. He does not see uh, simply on the outward things, but that he is looking on what is inward. This morning, as we read verse 26, It was fitting for us it was appropriate for us the text is saying it was needful for us to have this high priest who has been declared to us but even more so it is needful that he be holy and that we recognize holiness and it not be from outward means that it be from what is on the inside the holiness of of God, For if God is not present on the inside, holiness is not present either outwardly or inwardly. We may fool our neighbors when we may fool our friends, but holiness begins on the inside. My granddad had a saying, I'm sure you've heard it, beauty is skin deep and ugly is to the bone. I believe the same is reverse engineered for holiness that Holiness must be to the core, not only to the core, but from the core, from that which is on the inside springs that which will be evident on the outside of holiness. This Jesus who is described here in verse 26 as holy, as priest, if he resides, then holiness most evidently will be the characteristic of the man outwardly. But beyond that, Christ is not simply called holy. There is going to be a set of uh, descriptions here for us. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated, that conveniently and precisely declare that he is better than you and I, more infinitely. Why? Because he is holy. Some people think they're holy. If that's not good enough, he was innocent. Some people think they're innocent. If that's not good enough, he was undefiled. And so the text continues and continues to set Christ apart. Christ is thus far set apart. How much more so is the Christian to be set apart in these like means? It's not good enough to simply appear holy on the outside. Now it says this high priest is holy and he is innocent. What does innocent mean? He is not guilty. Simply put, he is not guilty. Seems very simple. The term innocent. The term in which we use, again, very haphazardly, especially in American culture. Man is accused of a crime. There's not sufficient evidence. We call him innocent. Man accused of a crime and he did not commit it. We call him innocent. And the truth is that He's not innocent. I'm reminded of what the Lord says in considering the commandments, what God has declared. If you have been guilty of one point of the law, you are guilty of all. There is none innocent. And here Christ is being pictured as this holy high priest who is innocent, never guilty without sin him who knew no sin was not acquainted with nor committed nor had thought of sin became sin for you and I here is pictured as innocent to which the Bible does a great deal throughout the Old Testament and the New declaring that we are not in fact innocent why because Men are persecutors. Men are full of malice, deceit, envy. So many times we see even to the church a declaration to be the exact opposite of these things. To put these corruptions off. Ephesians chapter 4. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you with all malice. Let these things be Uh, separated from you because you are not innocent of them because you have tendencies toward them to which Christ is being presented as holy and innocent none of these things I believe are mutually exclusive but for Christ to be one of these things he must be all for Christ to be holy he must be innocent Christ, to be holy, he must be undefiled. He must be separated. For Christ to be innocent, he must be holy. He must be undefiled. He must be separated. For Christ to be undefiled, he must be holy. He must be innocent. He must be separated. To be separated from sinners, he must be holy, innocent, undefiled. You see how that works? He must be all. And the reality is that you and I can be none without him. That which is required to enter into the kingdom of God, we have no chance lest we be all of these. How can it be? How can it be? We have songs that ask the question, we have hymns that declare this marvelous, almost incomprehensible truth. How can it be? Well, Paul says it this way, that we must die to self. We must be crucified with Christ and he must live in us. And we now must not be identified as our old self, but we must be identified as Christ. If we're to be holy, undefiled, if we're to be presented blameless, excuse me, before the living God, we must be Christ. We must be the bride of Christ. We must be following, looking like, and imitating Christ to the greatest degree. Christ must be residing and infilling and fulfilling. We're given text in Scripture. We're given a declaration that we ought to be Infilled with the Spirit. Not in dwelt with the Spirit, but in filled with the Spirit. Why is that? Because that is the only way that we may obtain these characteristics, for they belong only to Christ. Therefore, it stands to reason that they must be inherited only by union with Christ. How is that to be? Well, all of the verses that we read about holiness declare to us: we must be chosen. Not something to boast in of the flesh. If anything, you think being chosen by God is great. It's only great because it's a testimony to how powerful he is to save wretched sinners like you and I. You are not a good example of humanity. And nor am I, but you are a wonderful example as to how far the grace and the holiness and the righteousness of God may conform a sinful man. In fact, you would be the last choice of any other quote-unquote Savior. You'd be the last choice of any God. In one sense, it's kind of like when you're at school and You're gangly, and maybe overweight, not too athletic, you're the last one to be picked. Any strong team captain would leave you for last, never take you first, but the strongest, most victorious, he could take a whole team of you and win a greater, higher, more spiritual degree. This is what Christ has done in salvation. He has taken dry bones. He's taken sinful man. He's taken fatally corrupt and decaying flesh. Caused it to be born again. And not only born again but living an everlasting life. Why is it important that Christ be holy and Christ be innocent? Because if we are Christians and Christ followers, all we have is Christ. And he better be enough. Hebrews is declaring that he is more than enough. Holy and innocent without blame, this Christ. Where we are encouraged to put off all of these corruptions, all of these Faults, uh, all these, uh, uh, all these sinful manners that we have, all the guilt and shame, we have no place to put it, but we have a Savior, a High Priest who is called here innocent, this Christ, holy, without blame. So. Who may say if this Christ, think about it in in legal terms, if this Christ is as mediator and intercessor to present us before God Almighty and say, mine, paid for, and he is without blame and he is innocent, who will charge him as a liar? Who will stand as a witness against him before the Father and say, this man lies. In fact, the innocence of Christ is put on the stand as he justifies sinners. Because when he says, I justify, he cannot be brought into question. The holiness of God cannot be brought into question. King James Version Is called harmless. Why is that? Because he's saving. He is a savior. And his word and his intention. And everything that he does is good. It brings not simply as we like to think sometimes. Trial and tribulation. But it brings sanctification. It brings glorification. It brings righteousness. It brings holiness. Those things that are a necessity in the Christian walk. Christ is presented as innocent and harmless because what he does is for the benefit of sinners. It's for the benefit of those who are mortally and into eternity effectually sick forever unless this healer come there he is presented as harmless not only is Christ harmless I believe that if we understand anything about Christ that this text almost doesn't do enough for us that not only is he not harmless but he is healthy and he is of the greatest benefit this Jehovah healer. This is how Christ is presented. Holy, harmless, innocent, without sin. The very thing that we need most to separate from sin. How may we do it? Well, simply put that we are bound in flesh and we will always have the, the, the scent of sin as presented with Lazarus and his grave clothes. But we have a Christ who may cut it off and we still live. Christ who died as sin. Christ who lives as righteousness. Verse 26: High Priest, holy, innocent, undefiled. Again, this is getting back to the deity of Christ, undefiled. How can he be? How can he be undefiled? Well, we go back to Adam, right? We understand that because Christ is man, he must take on the nature of man, but not the sin nature. He is truly born from above, conceived of the Holy Spirit, this Christ. He's not affected Uh, by the sin of Adam, except for the fact that he may be the propitiation because of it. Christ is not tainted with sinful thoughts. Christ is not tainted even by flesh. I say that because the flesh has hindered him not from going to the cross and accomplishing the will of God that he was sent to do. The very thing that he was sent for to be this Savior, this greatest, highest, final priest. A lasting priest. Coincidentally, it is necessary for him to be holy and innocent and undefiled, for the very same reasons of what we read again this morning. The lamb caught in the thicket. God required that a sacrifice be without spot, without blemish. No sinful man is either of these things. Therefore, if we only understood one thing about this Savior who is sacrificed, we must know that he was perfect. Because if he would... He couldn't even be considered a lamb slain. He couldn't even be considered as a sacrifice. Neither temporal nor eternal. But he was. I'm reminded. We read over those things. Nobody ever thinks of thorns and thickets and brushes. Something wonderful. We just don't. It's part of the curse, right? Wonder what Abraham thought. Wonder what he thought about the thing that God, of course, created the thorn, represented in the crown of Christ as it was presented to us this morning, the thicket, that which would choke uh, vegetation out. Not very good for a garden. You can't eat it, really. Not good for firewood. It burns up pretty quick. Not good for anything, but it held the lamb. It held that sacrifice. It represents sin, right? What held Christ to the cross but sin? It's ironic. We can't really wrap our minds around it, but this Christ, this great high priest, this holy, anointed, innocent, undefiled man was held to the cross by sin and he defeated it. It was not his sin, as we see, because he was undefiled. He was not like the priest before him who had sin but it was our sin it was your sin this morning should be reminded that if you were the only human to ever live and you be called today church christ died for you likewise it doesn't matter what your neighbor has done doesn't matter what your neighbor eats what your neighbor drinks where your neighbor sins because I guarantee you sin as well and I sin just as deeply just as costly a mistake but this holy innocent undefiled Christ has gone to the cross and if your high priest in your mind if you're not fully convinced that he is greater than all those before him. The Bible says that he's holy. And if that's not good enough, it says that he's innocent. If that wasn't good enough for you, it says that he's undefiled. And and the truth be, if that's not good enough for you, you're a problem. But the text goes on and says that he is separated. Separated from sinners. To which I believe that The English translation cannot do it justice. Separated from sinners, but separated for sinners. Word from can carry a lot of weight as we consider the Christ. Separated from sinners. He was born of a sinner. Without Christ, I guarantee you, Mary was no saint. That's the God's honest truth. Without Christ, Mary is not a saint. Born from sinners yet, this Christ. Separated from those sinners because he was undefiled, because he was holy, because he was innocent. Separated because he was appointed, like what we see throughout Hebrews. Appointed by God to do the will of God. Separated. Separated. By all of these righteous, holy responses to sin, separated by his dedication to God, Christ separated from sinners, that as a priest, he may bridge the gap. Considering the priesthood, Hebrews does a great deal in revealing to us that it was necessary for a priest to represent God to man and man to God because there is a separation. Christ indeed separated from all the frailties, sinful frailties of human flesh. Nevertheless, born into this world condescending as a man and he was separated from the sin of Adam but he was made into that sin it's important to see Christ separated I say that for two reasons one it was necessary for this savior to be separated from sinners He must be altogether different. He must be altogether holy. He must not be ordinary, but He must be extraordinary. He must not be held down by the law, but He must be fulfilling the law. It's important. He must be separate from sinners. But, as we consider Christ Separation from sinners, we must realize that if it is indeed He who has delivered sinners, and we are called to imitate Him and we are called to be like Christ in every way, Christians are to be separated from sinners. And not the way that the world would have us believe, not the way that our religious friends would say. Don't eat there. They serve alcohol. Don't talk to that guy. He curses. He's engaged in fornication. Don't go out and play golf with him. That's not the separation we're called to. If that was what it was, how would Christ minister to sinners? How would you be saved? How could we claim victory over death through Jesus Christ? To be separate from sinners is to not have the same goal, the same motive, the same desire as sinners. Indeed, what it actually means to be separated from sinners is to not think like the sinner, but think like the redeemed. To want to serve God and every opportunity to want to glorify God in every event and every circumstance. I believe this morning we call I a worship. I don't, I don't pick these. Somebody else puts these in here. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. make maker has some uh, independent uh, independencies apart from putting these things in there and it's not by coincidence it's by the fact that Christ has been separated from sinners that we are as well called to be separated from sin but available to those and working for those whom the Lord will call unto His marvelous light. You can't evangelize while trying to, I guess, skate your way around the sinful man. I often think of when you're growing up, you know, parents may say something to you and it, and it carries some weight and we should be obedient to our parents. I don't want my kids hanging around with them. They're they're not a good influence. They're kind of bad kids. I I don't want my kids hanging around them. I thought if every parent felt that way, honestly felt that way, kids wouldn't hang out with kids. They'd probably be more biblical that way. Reality. Think about if Christ were to think that way. Not to associate. And that's what his disciples expected. That's what we profess sometimes with our actions that we think because we have been made holy and because we have been made pure, because Christ has saved us, that we ought not to be mingling with those sinners. It's not what the Bible says. Paul says, I become all things to all men that some might be saved. Paul was talking about all men. He was talking about those uh, who in retrospect are altogether different from... This man, Christ Jesus, as he is presented as holy and innocent. We have a duty to those people to be a light unto Christ, to be a reflective light like John the Baptist, to be as much like Christ that they see Christ in us, they hear Christ from us, and they love Christ for us. It's imperative. Nevertheless, the text is not dealing simply with you or I, but it is presenting a Messiah, a Christ who is undefiled, separated from sinners. And lastly, just before we we leave there, if we're looking at Christ and seeing him as the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, think about how separated he was. Not only was he separated in that he wasn't like them and he was without spot and blemish, but to separate this lamb from the rest of creation, the rest of men, to take the choicest, and that's what all the other sacrifices were about, right? The Levitical sacrifices. Taking the best and giving it to God. This is the separation of Christ. Separated from sinners because of this holiness because of this spotlessness because not a bone was broken because he was the choicest the son in whom I am well pleased God declared separated like a lamb for salvific slaughter this is Christ, and it goes on to say separated from sinner, from sinners, excuse me, and exalted, exalted above the heavens. We' to be like Christ. there are some things there that we would love to see, right? We would love to share those similarities to be exalted above the heavens. This morning when we read the passage and we confess that it must be about Christ, we see that he is exalted above the heavens. And of course, this is something that only God can do, but man is as well called to do it. And I ask, does the Christ that we serve, the Christ that we place and say we place our faith in, though by God we know he must have been, Question We must ask is, is He exalted above the heavens? I wonder why sometimes the word is placed there, those words, above the heavens. I believe for religious peoples, it's been placed there because there were those attitudes from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Maybe that, like Mary, we think she's some kind of specially holy. Angels reverenced sometimes and oftentimes by the unbelieving world and maybe even the professing world, some of them who have not truly salvation, thinking that angels are to be exalted, that angels are to be lifted up, that they're to be reverenced. And if you think that that doesn't happen, go to the Hallmark store around Christmas. Listen, I've got family members. Decorate the houses with these little figurines that look like angels. Why would you choose an angel? An angel can do nothing for you apart from Christ. When the word here declares that he is exalted above the heavens. It is a reality, not a possibility, but a reality that this Christ is exalted above the heavens. Just like He is called Lord of lords. And in the same manner, we are called to treat him as such. If you do not exalt Christ, is he exalted above the heavens? Absolutely yes. If you uh, say that that Jesus Christ is Lord, is he Lord of lords? Absolutely yes. If you deny either of those things, does it make him any less Lord or any less exalted? Not this Christ. This is a biblical Christ. This is a holy Christ. This is an innocent Christ, blameless Christ, undefiled. But most importantly, as we see this morning, this is a saving Christ. If you think Abraham was holy, if you think Abraham was righteous, If you think Abraham was somehow or David or any other of these uh, holy figures that you have in your mind, if you think that they were somehow all of these declarations that we have, holy, righteous, somehow to the same degree uh, as the text is describing Jesus, ask yourself this, does the Bible ever say that there is salvation in any of those names? doesn't. Abraham has what he needs in regards to holiness. David and Paul and Peter, Adam even, have what they need in regards to holiness and righteousness, purity. But rest assured, it is nothing, well, at least this side of heaven, it was nothing compared to what Christ offers because it is inherent and it is eternal if we must uh, come to terms this morning with anything from the text it must be that christ is supreme it must be that holiness is derived in christ must be that righteousness is derived from and in Christ. It can be achievable no other way. Your confession this morning must be not what must I do to be saved, but what has Christ done for me to already be saved? Seems just like a flop of just a couple words, but the reality is that our salvation lies not within the ability of man, but within the promise of God. The covenant That is made in the blood of this great high priest. Do you believe in him? Do you trust in him? Or do you trust in works? Let's pray. Father God, as we look at your word, Lord, we just pray that you would reveal to us what true holiness looks like. God, what conformity to Christ is truly. Lord, we're a man. We have sinned for ages. Lord, we think about what our fathers may teach us. Our fathers may teach us a trade, Lord. They may teach us plumbing, electrical construction. God, they may teach us how to play sports. The one thing that every man does as well as his father is sin. When we are in all respects good at sin, we can do it without even thinking. we ask today that you would not only show us the holiness of Christ, Lord, but impart to us that which is reserved for a king or that those things that only reside in the son of God living water the bread of life this Jesus Christ God and we ask that you would graciously and mercifully part to us these wonderful gifts and these wonderful attributes Lord that cannot be contained in the human flesh, but must be revealed by Spirit and maintained by those everlasting arms that we sing of. Lord, I ask this morning that for each member of this church, Lord, and for those yet to be saved, that You would convince us of sin, God. Convict us of that sin and convince us as well of the righteousness of Christ, that in Him and in Him alone, may we be saved to the uttermost. Lord, we also pray for those who are here this morning, Lord, that You would minister to them through Your Word and through the person of Christ by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that uh, You would as well bless the meal that we partake, Lord, that we may recognize that It comes from you, Lord, that every ounce of sustenance, every particle of air, God, that we could not have it unless you be working still. Lord, we we rest upon that fact. Not only that you're working for those temporal things which we so need, Lord, but most importantly that your living word is working now to save, again, Lord, to the uttermost sinful man, Lord, we praise You. Lord, we ask that You would receive our worship today. And Lord, we uh, most ultimately come together with the goal of exalting Jesus as highly and as lifted up as possible. Lord, and that You may even this day glorify Him and Yourself as well. Lord, and that sinners may be this moment a testimony to the effectual working of Christ on the cross. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.